Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode five of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the subject is the Crusaders in Constantinople. In the last episode, we heard about how the Fourth Crusade captured and sacked the extraordinary city of Constantinople and as we'll hear in this episode, the Crusaders then set themselves up as the new rulers of the city and they also seized what lands they could from the Byzantines who retreated into three corners of their empire. The first was Nicaea, which was the largest Byzantine state and which was on the Anatolian side of the empire, so it had the Turks on the eastern border. Another was in Trebizond, which was a long-established Greek city founded on the Black Sea coast about 2,000 years before. And the third Byzantine state was in Epirus, which was on the western Greek coastline. Where did the Crusaders settle? Well, aside from Constantinople itself, they occupied most of Greece and set up a number of feudal states like the Kingdom of Thessalonica and the Duchy of Athens, which we'll hear about. What motivated them? Well, I think material gain was the top priority, although they probably justified it to themselves a bit by saying that they were doing what they could for the real Crusaders in the Holy Land by subjugating the Byzantines, who were widely seen, of course, in the West as treacherous foot to the Crusades. But there's no doubt that the Crusaders settling in Greece must have also had a pretty good life. And I was struck by this when I visited the castle of Larissa in the Peloponnese in southern Greece a few years ago, because it's a stunning Crusader fortress built on top of what was once the ancient Acropolis of Argos. And the views from the top are simply unbelievable. You can see the blue Aegean Sea stretching around the high rocky cliff that the castle's on. And I could just imagine the French knights and their wives looking out on this scene of paradise as they drank wine and ate olives, which I'm sure the poor Greek peasants were hard at work producing for them. It is extraordinary, I think, that some Byzantine states clung on and survived this disaster, and that the Byzantine state in Nicaea was actually able to defeat the Crusaders later on and to recapture Constantinople in 1261. But I think we need to see all of this in perspective. The Crusader kingdoms in Greece and the Byzantine governments in exile really were just small-scale, petty states fighting it out with a few hundred or maybe a few thousand soldiers on each side. Long gone was the great Byzantine Empire, which uh, at the Battle of Manzikert had been a true superpower and really could claim to be descended from the late Roman Empire. By the way, if you're interested in reading more about all of that, my book called The Byzantine World War is on a special promotion at Amazon for only a dollar or a pound if you buy the ebook. One reason to have a look is that the ebook and the print book, of course, both have a lot of maps of not just the Byzantine Empire, but the Crusader states as well. And I always feel that this is one area where a podcast can be a little bit limited because you can't see the maps of where everything happened. And they are so important, I think, especially for a subject like the Crusades. So if you want to spend a dollar on some maps, I strongly recommend it. But that's enough of my trying to sell my own book. Let's get on with the story. And as before, I'll read extracts from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. (music) 
When the sack of Constantinople had lasted for three days and the soldiers were exhausted, order was restored. The city was divided three-eighths for the Crusaders, three-eighths for the Venetians and one-quarter for the future emperor. The next task was to select this emperor. Boniface of Montferrat still hoped to be chosen, but the Venetians didn't like him. Under their influence, the throne was given to a less controversial prince, Baldwin IX, Count of Flanders and Hainault, a man of high lineage and great wealth, but weaker and more tractable. His title was to be grander than his actual power. He was indeed to be overlord of all of the conquered territory, with the ominous exception of the lands allotted to the Doge of Venice. His personal domain was to include Thrace as far as Corlu and Bithynia and Mysia as far as Mount Olympus and some of the Aegean islands, Samothrace, Lesbos, Chios, Samos and Kos. But his capital was not to be entirely his own, for the Venetians claimed their right to three-eighths of Constantinople and took the portion that included St. Sophia, where a Venetian, Thomas Morosini, was installed as patriarch. In addition, they demanded those parts of the empire that would aid their maritime supremacy, the western coasts of continental Greece, the whole of the Peloponnese, Naxos, Andros and Euboea, Gallipoli and the Thracian ports on the Marmara and Adrianople. To Boniface, as compensation for missing the throne, they offered a vague dominion in Anatolia, the eastern centre of continental Greece and the island of Crete. But having no desire to go out to conquer lands in Asia, he demanded instead Macedonia with Thessalonica. Baldwin disagreed, but public opinion supported him, especially when he put forward a hereditary claim derived from his brother Rainier who had married the Byzantine princess Maria and he won over the Venetians by selling them Crete. He became king of Thessalonica under the emperor. Lesser nobles were assigned fiefs suited to their rank and importance. On the 16th of May 1204, Baldwin was ceremoniously crowned in St. Sophia. On the 1st of October, after he had suppressed a bid by Boniface for independence, he held a court at Constantinople where he enfiefed some 600 of his vassals under their lordships. Meanwhile, a constitution was worked out, based partly on the theories of feudal lawyers and partly on what was believed to be the practice of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. A council of tenants-in-chief assisted by the Venetian Podesta of Constantinople advised the emperor on political matters. It directed military operations and could countermand the emperor's administrative orders. A high court similarly composed regulated his relations with his vassals. He became little more than the chairman of a house of peers. Few constitutions have been so impractical as that embodied by the Crusaders in Constantinople. The Crusaders called their empire Romania, but it had little reality, for many of its provinces were still unconquered and never would be conquered. The Venetians, in their realism, took only what they knew that they could hold, Crete and the ports of Modon and Croton in the Peloponnese, and for a while the island of Corfu. They set up vassal lords of Venetian origin in their Aegean islands, and in Cephalonia and Euboea accepted the homage of Latin princes who had installed themselves ahead of them. 
Boniface of Montferrat soon overran most of continental Greece and set up his vassals there, a Burgundian, Otto of La Roche, becoming Duke of Athens and Thebes. The Peloponnese fell to two French lords, William of Champlit and Geoffrey of Villehardouin, nephew of the chronicler who founded a dynasty of princes of Achaea. Nearly all the European provinces of the empire passed thus into crusader hands, but the crusaders were mistaken in their belief that the capture of Constantinople would give them the whole of the former Byzantine empire. In times of disaster, the Byzantine spirit showed itself at its most courageous and energetic. The loss of Constantinople led at first to chaos, but within two years the independent Byzantine world was reorganised in three successor states. Away in the east, two grandsons of the Emperor Andronicus, Alexius and David Comnenus, had, with the help of their aunt, the great Queen Tamar of Georgia, occupied Trebizond and established a dominion along the Black Sea shores of Asia Minor. David was killed in 1206 while fighting to extend their power towards the Bosphorus, but Alexius lived on to take the title of emperor and to found a dynasty that lasted for two and a half centuries, enriched by the trade from Persia and the east that passed through its capital and by the silver mines in the hills behind and famed for the beauty of its princesses. Away in the west, a bastard of the Angeli made himself despot of Epirus and founded a dynasty that was to extinguish the Monferrat kingdom of Thessalonica. Most familiar of the three Byzantine states was the empire set up at Nicaea by Alexius III's daughter Anna and her husband Theodore Lascaris. The leading citizens that had escaped from Constantinople gathered there around them. In Byzantine eyes, Nicaea thus became the seat of the legitimate empire. Theodore soon extended his rule over most of the lands that had been left to Byzantium in Asia. In little more than 50 years, his successors would reign again in Constantinople. The Crusaders also forgot that there were other races in the Balkans. The Vlaco-Bulgarian Empire of the Azen brothers would have willingly allied with them against the hated Byzantines, but the Crusader Emperor claimed territory that the Bulgarian Tsar Kalayan had occupied, and the Latin Patriarch claimed authority over the Orthodox Bulgarian Church. Bulgaria was driven into an unnatural alliance with the Byzantines, and at the Battle of Adrianople in 1205, the army of the Crusaders of their so-called Romania was almost annihilated and the Emperor Baldwin left to die as a prisoner in a Balkan castle. It seemed for a moment that the next emperor to rule in Constantinople would actually be the Bulgarian Tsar, but it was Baldwin's brother Henry who saved the day for the Crusaders. The energy and tolerant wisdom that he showed in his ten years' reign saved the Crusader Empire from immediate destruction, and the rivalries of the Byzantines and their quarrels with each other and with the Bulgarians and the presence in the background of the Turks kept the Crusader state of Romania alive until 1261. However, the exultant conquerors of 1204 could not foresee how empty would be the results of their enterprise, and their contemporaries were equally dazzled by the conquest. There was exultation at first throughout the Christian world. True, the Cluniac satirist Guillaume de Provins asked in his poems why the Pope had permitted a crusade against Christians, and the Provencal troubadour Guillaume Figuera 
bitterly accused Rome of treachery against the Byzantines. But when he wrote, Rome was actually preaching a crusade against his own fellow countrymen. Such dissidents were indeed rare and Pope Innocent, for all the misgivings that he had felt about the diversion of the crusade from Egypt to Constantinople, was actually delighted in answer to an ecstatic letter from the new Emperor Baldwin boasting of the great and valuable results of the miracle that God had wrought, Innocent wrote that he rejoiced in the Lord and gave his approval without reserve. Throughout the West there was praise for the Fourth Crusade and this enthusiasm only increased when precious relics began to arrive for the churches of France and Belgium. Hymns were sung to celebrate the fall of the great ungodly city whose treasures were now being disgorged. The crusaders in the east were encouraged by the news. Surely with Constantinople in the hands of their kinsmen, the whole strategy of the crusades would be far more effective. Rumours came that the Muslims were struck with terror and the Pope congratulated himself on the alarm that the Sultan of Egypt was said to have expressed about the fall of Constantinople. However, Second thoughts were less encouraging. The Pope's misgivings on reflection began to return. The integration of the Eastern Empire and its church into the heart of Roman Christendom was a fine achievement, but had it been done in a way that would bring lasting benefit? He received more information and learnt to his horror of the blasphemous and bloodthirsty scenes in the sack of the city. He was profoundly shocked as a Christian and deeply troubled as a statesman. Such barbarous brutality was not the best policy for winning the affections of the Eastern Christians. He wrote in bitter fury to Constantinople, enumerating and denouncing the atrocities. He learned, too, that the conquerors had blandly divided up the state and the church there without any reference to his authority. His rights had been deliberately ignored, and he could see how incompetent were the arrangements made for this new empire and how completely the crusaders had been outwitted by the Venetians. Then, to his disgust, he heard that his legate Peter of Saint-Marcel had issued a decree absolving all who had taken the cross from making the further journey to the Holy Land. The crusade was revealed as an expedition whose only aim was to conquer Christian territory. It was nothing to do with the Christian soldiers fighting against Islam. Meanwhile, the crusaders in Syria had already realised that they could not hope for another expedition in 1204. The summer passed with the crusaders still remaining at Constantinople, and in September, King Amalric of Jerusalem made a truce with Al-Adil, knowing that no reinforcements would now come. But soon it became clear that the Latin establishments further north would actually do positive harm to the crusader establishments in Syria. The Emperor Baldwin had boasted to Pope Innocent that many knights from Outremer had come to his own coronation, and he did his best to persuade them to stay with him. When it was discovered that there were rich and pleasant fiefs to be had by the boss or in Greece, other knights who had lost their lands in Syria to the Muslims hastened to Constantinople to join them. Amongst them was Hugh of Tiberius, the eldest of Raymond of Tripoli's sons, and husband of Margaret of Ebelin, Maria Comnena's daughter. Adventurous knights from the west now found 
bit pointless to go so far as the overcrowded kingdom of Jerusalem to look for a lordship or an heiress. There were better lands to be found in Greece. The conquest of Cyprus had already lured away settlers from the Syrian mainland. After the conquest of Romania, recruits for the military orders were almost the only knights to come out from Europe to defend the Holy Land. There was never a greater crime against humanity than the Fourth Crusade. Not only did it cause the destructional dispersal of all the treasures of the past that Byzantium had devotedly stored and the mortal wounding of a civilization that was still active and great, but it was also an act of gigantic political folly. It brought no help to the Christians in the Holy Land. Instead, it robbed them of potential helpers and it upset the whole defence of Christendom. Had the Crusaders been able to take over the whole Byzantine Empire, as it had been in the days of the Emperor Manuel, then they could have at least provided powerful aid to the crusading movement, though Byzantium run in the interests of Crusader Syria would not have long prospered. But Byzantium had lost territory in Anatolia since Manuel's death, and the Crusaders could not even conquer all that was left while their attack on the Byzantines gave further strength to the Turks. The land route from Europe to Syria became more difficult as a result of the Fourth Crusade, with the Byzantines of Nicaea suspicious and the Turks hostile to travellers. No armed group from the West was ever to attempt the journey across Anatolia again. Nor was the sea route made any easier for Italian ships now preferred to carry passengers to the Greek islands and the Bosphorus rather than to Acre or the Syrian ports. In the wide sweep of world history, the effects of the Fourth Crusade were wholly disastrous. Since the beginning of its empire, Byzantium had been the guardian of Europe against the infidel East and the barbarian North. Byzantium had opposed them with its armies and tamed them with its civilization. Byzantium had passed through many difficult times when it had seemed that it was doomed, but somehow it had survived until 1204. At the close of the 12th century, Byzantium was indeed facing a crisis as the damage to its manpower and its economy caused by the Turkish conquests in Anatolia a century before began to take full effect, enhanced by the energetic rivalry of the Italian merchant cities. But Byzantium might well have shown its resilience once again and might even have reconquered the Balkans and much of Anatolia and its culture could have continued its uninterrupted influence over the countries around. Even the Seljuk Turks might possibly have fallen under its sway and in the end been absorbed in order to refresh the empire. The story of the Empire of Nicaea shows that the Byzantines had not lost their vigour, but with Constantinople gone, the unity of the Byzantine world was broken and could never be repaired, even after the capital itself was recovered. It was part of the achievement of the Byzantine Nicaeans to keep the Seljuk Turks in check, but when a new, more vigorous Turkish tribe appeared under the leadership of the brilliant House of Osman, the East Christian world was too deeply divided to make an effective stand. Its leadership was passing elsewhere, away from the Mediterranean birthplace of European culture, to the far northeast, to the vast plains of Russia. The second Rome was increasingly to be found in Moscow.
Meanwhile, hatred had been sown between Eastern and Western Christendom, the bland hopes of Pope Innocent and the complacent boasts of the Crusaders that they had ended the schism between Rome and Constantinople and united the Church were never fulfilled. Instead, their barbarity left a memory that would never be forgiven. Seldom in history has there been an expedition of such folly as that of the Fourth Crusade. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. I think it's pretty clear what Steve Runciman thought of the Fourth Crusade, and I must say I completely agree with him. And in the next episode, we'll hear about what was happening to the Crusaders back in the Holy Land. Thanks for listening. <laughs>